Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Ushma Garg, founder and CEO of Gobble, and Micah Rosenblum, partner at Founder Collective. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks for having us. Ushma, can you describe what Gobble is and what problem you set out to solve when starting it? Sure. Gobble was built to design a solution for busy families who don't have time to cook. Our mission is to make cooking easy in this 24-7 busy world. And the way that we do that is by shipping people dinners that they can make in 15 minutes and one pan. We have this army of sous chefs that chops and preps everything so that anyone can cook. So, Micah, you invested in Gobble. Can you talk about how you viewed meal delivery as a space? Yeah. I mean, I think we've always been, you know, generalist seed investors. And when we fall in love with an entrepreneur and his or her vision, we just get excited about it. And we've done everything from stuff in, you know, food to genetic testing for dogs to, you know, Hotel Tonight. So it's, it's a really diverse portfolio. And, you know, I, I think we didn't even realize we invested in Gobble in the early days and played it in the early days, Skip the Dishes, which is sort of like a seamless grub hub in Canada, and how these businesses were going to slice and dice the food market, bad pun, sorry, you know, I, I think it was sort of this realization that the food industry, like transportation, is just a massive, massive industry, and it could be cut into different segments. And Ushma's really found a, a massive segment looking for convenience, but still wanting that satisfaction of cooking, but maybe doesn't have an hour or two hours to prep. Plated found a slightly different audience, and likewise, Skip in Canada, more on the delivery side. So, you know, we were never really thematic. It just sort of turned out that way. Talk about how you map the, the food market. What are the, the different approaches? You described a few of the companies. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think there's what we're seeing is, you know, everything from new devices. So if you think of, you know, some of the new cooking technologies that are Brava is pioneering a uh, light based, we're not investors, so I, I don't know super, you know, details about it, but a light based cooking technique and that will enable, you know, new ways of cooking meals, even subscribing to food. I think their good eggs is, is distributing that product or starting to. Uh, likewise, there's some other folks in that category like Tavala and stuff. So you have this whole new category of, let's call it like new appliances. Uh, you've got a category of companies that I think can't be put into one box, but you know, all sorts of different companies who are pre, pre-cutting, pre-distributing ingredients for different use cases, different diets, different timelines, different family setups. And, and, you know, we're fortunate to be investors in Gobble and Ushma can tell us more about how she thinks about that space and where it's going. We're seeing, you know, delivery, you know, I, I think people used to think of Instacart, DoorDash, all these guys in one segment. Actually, they're quite different. Instacart, you know, clearly on the kind of groceries, you know, originally with the relationship with Whole Foods and then kind of a universe of, distri- of, of delivery folks, but really that have different restaurants, different fee structures different strengths and weaknesses in markets. And that's everyone from Postmates to DoorDash to Seamless Grubhub. So I, I just think this market has is continuing to evolve into many interesting different sub-segments. And, you know, arguably it's among the biggest parts of GDP. I mean, we all eat hopefully two to three t- times a day. 
you know, it's increasing diversity of diets, people eating gluten-free or vegan is growing. I think it's also interesting, you know, even some of the kind of what we consider in the past QSRs or fast food chains, if you look at the rise of sweet greens or Blaze Pizza, it's fascinating to see, you know, companies that you never would have thought be venture-backed, uh, but are actually venture capital-backed restaurant chains that seem to be growing at, at speeds we haven't seen very many uh, companies other than like a McDonald's or a Starbucks in the past. So it's a long answer to a short question, Eric, but I think it's just like, it's fascinating to see just how many segments, just how much innovation, how much investment dollars are going into food. And I, I don't think it's going to stop. I mean, I think we're going to see, you know, more and more things that look like these DNBBs, digital native vertical brands, like we see in now drug, we see it in, you know, everything from mattresses to, you know, luggage. I think we're seeing that same that same play in food. Ujma, how did you think about your approach with Gobble and your, your wedge in, into the market out of all the opportunities within the space that you could have pursued? I really couldn't agree with Micah more. You know, the reason I think that we'll continue to see this investment in food is because in the last decade or so, we've seen kind of the highest levels of earthquakes in the food space from multiple viewpoints. On the one hand, you have food shifting from grocery into the home. And then on the other hand, you have, as Micah mentioned, these DNVBs who are developing a direct relationship with the customer themselves, a digital relationship where they can access their customer at any time and not have to go through a grocery store or a third party. So in the past, generally speaking in the food space, there was production and distribution and different titans in industry owned these two pieces of the puzzle. There'd be like Campbell's, Kraft, Kellogg's, et cetera, owning production and Safeway, Albertsons, et cetera, owning distribution. Now you have companies that are vertically integrated, are collecting all the data and collecting all the margin by producing the product themselves and just owning the entire value chain to the customer. So I think that just with the advancements in technology and data science, but also with this delivery culture that we've seen arise in the last decade, there's just a new future for food, and, and it's not going to be part of the old guard. Let's unpack that even further, Ushma. What has been the relationship between incumbents and startups in the space over the last decade or two decades? And what sort of structural changes uh, or evolutions in the market have allowed more startups to compete? Well, first of all, there's a lot of there's different categories of incumbents and different categories of startups. So as Micah mentioned, money is going into restaurants. There's also there are companies that are just distribution focused. So the traditional meal kit industry was more of a distribution play than an actual product or manufacturing play. It was taking this arbitrage opportunity, buying produce on one end, packing it in a nice branded box and selling it on the other end. Those companies are most threatening to grocery chains. And that's why you've seen a lot of activity between grocery and the traditional meal kit in the past couple of years. However, Companies like Gobble actually manufacture bespoke food products. And we have over a thousand different SKUs that we've honed over four years that are purposefully and nuancedly designed to appeal to specific people with specific tastes. The best analogy I can come up with is how Netflix used to be a platform, not even a platform, but a, a curated place where other people's content would show. They started and they got all of that data. Now they're actually producing the content and producing the movies. And this year, their most watched content is their original content because they have all the data to do it and they can make the best content now. 
that's kind of how I see our approach to gobble. It was the combination of technology and distribution, also with this day one focus of culinary research and development and in prepping food and manufacturing food that actually led gobble to be different and sort of withstand all the other kind of quakes in the broader direct-to-consumer industry. One other company that I would mention that might help understanding is Zara. They have a reputation for rapid product ideation, development, and deployment, and are known in the fashion industry to capitalize first on all trends and in a cost-effective way. It's this great balance between producing high volumes of trendy fashion, but not so high that you're stuck with tons of inventory. When we first started Gobble, people thought it was a fool's errand for us to manufacture 400 gallons of 10 sauces in one week, wipe everything clean, then become experts at 10 different sauces the next week. But it was that leaning into difficulty and challenge that ultimately led to our differentiation and defensibility, because now we're the only player that can rapidly manufacture bespoke targeted food SKUs on a rotating weekly basis at high volumes and no CPG and no technology startup company has been able to do that. So that's how we kind of carved out our moat, so to speak. Michael, when, when you're evaluating markets, you know, for example, if we were talking about a photo sharing app, we would say, hey, it's going to be tough to uh, you know, compete with Facebook. How do you think about the power of incumbents and evaluating in markets, whether there's opportunities to disrupt them from a startup incumbent perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the the reason I think it's still a very exciting time, even though I think in general, the venture community has soured perhaps on food staff, food-related technology, is I, I personally think a couple shifts have happened. One, I still think the incumbents are very hobbled by their old infrastructure. So if you're a grocery store, you have, you know, your supply relationships, you, you know, you've got tens of thousands of SKUs, you've got this physical retail, you know, locations that have big footprints, big parking lots, you know, all over the country. There's just a lot of cost and it's always been a low margin business. Different aspects of this are being disrupted by all these different players, whether it's, you know, ready to eat meals. And, and actually even grocery has evolved a bit. Most grocers used to be like 95%, you know, just products. And now, you know, you walk into a grocery store, it's like a third to half or more ready to eat. A lot of the modern groceries are mostly ready to eat meals effectively. They look more like restaurants or buffets. But I think they're just still, you know, I think we have yet to see, they haven't closed quite like we've seen bookstores close, but it wouldn't surprise me if it goes that way. So I think that's one reason why I think there's a lot more room for disruption. And then I think secondly, the rails have been built. So, you know, I think we haven't seen yet all the businesses being built on top of Uber Eats and DoorDash, et cetera. You know, I, I think those are delivery rails that enable a whole new wave of, potentially types of food providers. And then I think there's this whole, you know, third movement, which is I'm willing to accept and I'm actually excited to get ingredients shipped to me, whether they're frozen, whether they're fresh, curated for me. And that could be everything from, you know, what Gobble is doing so well with meals, but even things like smoothies, soups, you know, you look at what Daily Harvest is doing in kind of that segment. So I, I think unlike photo sharing, which is, you know, it's tough to make analogies with these different businesses, but unlike photo sharing, where I think the incumbents in this case, you know, in that case, like Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, I think that the switching costs are really hard. They basically offer free products. I think in the food market, you're disrupting these, you know, really old incumbents. And 
I, I think there's still a lot of room there. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to invest in there and uh, hopefully alongside our friends at Village Global. But I don't write off this category at all. You mentioned VCs have soured on it. Perhaps that's because, you know, there was sort of big blowups with Muntree, uh, Sprig, Spoon Rocket, et cetera. What have we learned in the last, you know, five to eight years about the space, about what approaches work and, and what approaches don't work? It's hard, right? Because every individual failure is probably, you know, it's like these, it's like outliers, you read it and it's a combination of, you know, it's like, why did the Korean airline think, you know, God forbid, you know, crash. It's like a lot of different variables and many of them may have been idiosyncratic to those businesses. In general, what I'd say though, is that it's hard. I mean, Ushima can probably attest, like you're feeding people, things rot, things, you know, there are safety issues. There's differences between the East coast and the West coast. There's snowstorms that happen during shipping. There's, you know, uh, unforeseen supply disruptions. And I just think it's hard. It's still an Adam's business. It's not all bits and bites, another bad pun. You know, I, I think it's just, it's just hard. And I think a lot of people try to, oh God, bite off more than they can chew. They, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> I'm going to stop off my head. No, I, I just think it's like, I think it's not a technology business in many ways. It's logistics. And I think either a lot of these businesses have tried to scale too quickly or they were, you know, too in love with the technology side, but not enough with like the actual recipes or vice versa. Yes. Like Micah said, it's just, there's, there's such a plethora of reasons. And there's also a number of different kinds of companies that, you know, have made it or haven't made it, despite the fact that they tried so hard. I, I think that there's external factors and internal factors. So we'll remove all the internal factors. Certainly, if you get just a boatload of money and mismanage that in your first year or don't know how to use it and so on and so forth. We definitely saw some of that with some of these big flame outs, but outside of just mismanagement of people or funds, externally, I think that the on-demand food industry had a number of similar companies that didn't work out. And from there, there were some core learnings and just takeaways for, for future food companies. One of those is that on-demand food requires inventory and it's highly perishable. And all the companies that were trying to drive around with trays of food in their cars couldn't make it work. What's so interesting is now DoorDash and Uber Eats have this cloud kitchens concept and they're vertically integrating as well and inventing these restaurants that don't even exist, but save for on their apps I think that that is the version, now we're finally seeing it's, you know, some five years later, the version of on-demand food that actually works. It was a marriage of existing restaurants and inventory with vertically integrated owned restaurants and inventory that, that made it work. And also, just like Micah said, it was built on the rails of the existing Uber system so that people actually got things quickly and they had enough variety so that there were network effects and people kept using the platform because variety and choice on all of those takeout order companies has been paramount to their success. And so all of these other companies saying, hey, we were going to have only three dishes a day served to the entire Bay Area didn't work. And maybe it was choice and then also just volume and network effects. Zooming out a bit, let's pretend that you guys were starting a fund to solely focus your investments on, on the food space at large. I'm curious to get your perspective on where the, where the white space is. And I'll ask sort of two questions that'll get at it. One is what would the sort of request for startups be? Where do you want to see more experimentation, innovation, disruption? And two, perhaps if you weren't building Gobble and assuming you had any relevant skill sets or resources, what other 
opportunity would you not chew on? <laughs> would you uh, would you go for? I'm very intrigued by what these devices are doing. And I, I, again, like fully admit, saw some of them, not an investor, probably was more skeptical early on and now coming around. Uh, I don't own a Brava. It is $1,000 and I'm debating whether we will get enough use out of it, but I am probably going to get one at some point. And I just think it's interesting to think about if you could change, look, we're a generation, I'll, I'll speak for myself anyway, I think, but I bet all of us are, we're like, our parents cooked a bit. Ushma, I know your, your parents, uh, I think you, you had a lot of family cooking. For yes. But, but I think like that has not been, that skill has not been given to me at least. There's going to be a generation younger than us that, that really didn't grow up cooking a lot, that really leveraged these services. And so do I think in the way the microwave changed the way, you know, a generation of people heated up, God forbid, not so healthy, you know, TV dinners. Like I think there's going to be a new generation of equipment uh, in the way we use iPhones and the way we use a lot of other devices in the kitchen. And I, I don't know if it's going to be light-based. I don't know enough about the technology, but I do know that if you can make a really great meal, like um, just in the way at some point we won't need to know how to drive, we're nearing the point where we don't really need to know how to cook. Now, I do think there is still something very important culturally and sociologically, which is why things like gobble and why cooking will always be a part of our what, what it is to be human. But I also think there is increasingly going to be people who, you know, want to use the kitchen, not in the same way we may have thought about it in the past 20 years. And I think, anyway, hardware devices of some sort, coupled with some sort of consumable, which will be the food, will evolve. And I'm interested to see how that plays out. I'm not sure we can even envision what that means exactly. I don't know if that means that, like, we have access to foods in the way that like the supermarket is just available to us at any given moment. And we can just pop the thing into some device that makes like a filet mignon and cream spinach just the way we wanted it. Or I don't know, but I think it's going to be a combination of hardware and kind of food innovation. So what's intriguing and exciting to me is I think there is going to be technology. It's not just going to be new distribution models where that goes. I, I, I don't know, but that's just sort of one point of view on it. The other thing I'd say just broader on the food market, which we didn't cover or talk about are these kind of indoor farms, you know, Bowery back in New York. And, you know, I I think the sort of supply chain is kind of interesting. And and are we, you know, we know that like the farm business is not what it used to be, uh, of course. And we we also have talked about lab grown stuff. So I think that piece of the market is also kind of interesting. Is the supply side going to just totally change? And, you know, given the sort of environmental concerns of, you know, growing lots of leafy greens or, you know, raising lots of cows and, you know, of course, antibiotics and all that stuff. If that side shifts too, I think that's a whole nother interesting segment for investment and for change. So I just think a lot of change is happening. And, and I think it's, I think it may be an, an area we, I think we may be really in the first or second inning. Yeah. I do see a lot of consolidation that, that will continue though. I think one of the fatal flaws of some of these hardware companies, as well as these DNVBs or traditional meal kits, is that they have one product and that was their company. And you know, I'm in it for the big win. I think that I think that the winning co- company in some of these spaces, is for, take Gobble for example, it's not just one brand or one product. You have all of this infrastructure, supply chain, core competencies and relationship with tens of thousands of people directly or you know, millions of people directly into their homes on a daily basis. And so the, the future is if companies like ours don't limit their thinking and think of themselves not as 
one product or one brand, but as a house of products and a house of brands. And I think that the startups now should be thinking, okay, it's not that I want to, you know, beat this other startup incumbent or whatever in the $1 billion range, but rather, can you displace an entire CPG company in these crafts and Kellogg's and Campbell's and in the hardware space, can you, can you be the entire, you know, the next Samsung or chef's made or whatever it is that you want to compete with. I, I've just seen a number of early companies that stop at the one oven or the one pan. And certainly you have to get the product market fit for a few years, but very quickly, as soon as that happens, I think leveraging all of your core competencies and sweating your assets and owning more of the home is very important. So I don't think it's going to be kind of 10 startups that win. I think that Gobble will deliver a lot more into people's homes and a lot, own a lot more of their stomach share and, and wallet share. And I think that people in hardware will do the same. And, and the same thing will happen for people that are developing offline companies like the Uber Eats and the DoorDashes. I, there's room for a few titans in each arena, but not necessarily, at least the way I think, for so many brand new fresh seed entrants, given all of the cost of actually starting up with all of this infrastructure required in all of those categories. And, and is that how the sort of VC-backed restaurants that Mike was talking about earlier makes sense, if you think about it as a sort of house of restaurants, or how, how does that make sense from a venture back world perspective? I, you know, I agree with you, Sean. I, I, you know, it's like what you see in any of these categories, you, you know, even software, right? A lot of VC dollars chase a lot of companies that do the same thing. And then, you know, there's probably only room for, you know, there's probably only room for a couple dominant expense management systems or, you know, um, CRM software. I, like, I think in any one of these categories, maybe, maybe the same with men's health prescriptions. And so I think, you know, what we probably have seen is a bunch of VC dollars go into a bunch of these companies. And then there's, there's a winnowing. There's, you know, a few winners and a few that kind of don't make it. Maybe some get acquired, maybe one or two go public. And I agree. I, I agree with what Ushman is saying. I think, the other thing Ushman talked about earlier, which I think is unique to food, is it's still very human, and therefore there's a lot of diverse tastes. There's still a very qualitative nature. You know, it, it's hard to build, like, an ROI model for a meal. And I think that will allow for continued innovation and, frankly, for more players in a space. I mean, I, I, I just think, like, the, the number of, you know, combinations or permutations of food is infinite, I think people have different palates. I think people's tastes evolve. And so I, I think, you know, unlike maybe some other categories like in, you know, software, or maybe even in, in um, transportation, where there's like a dominant player, I do think there's room for more. I, I just think that because it's human, because it's subjective, because it's, there's so much tied into your history, your culture, your tastes, your family setup that different players will solve different, different elements of that. And uh, it'll be hard for one, you know, new massive, massive CPG. I, I may be wrong, but that's at least as I see it today. Looking out five years from now, 10 years from now, how do you expect the industry to look like, what does this conversation look like 10 years from now when we're talking about the companies that have, you know, become unicorns besides Gobble, of course, uh, or the types of companies, as well as the types of companies that have gone belly up, like the ones we described earlier? Sure. One thing that I'm seeing more of is that experiences are remaining in the real world and commodities are coming into the home. So th that's been happening for a long time with the removal of something like a Blockbuster and the Netflix coming into the home. But still, you know, people enjoying 
the experience of a movie theater. Same thing goes for all fine dining and restaurant experiences that are you know, just as popular as they have been, perhaps even more popular with the millennial generation. So I think there's a higher bar for innovation anywhere because there's well-funded, huge competitors like an Amazon. And so you, you can't really compete in the commodity delivery space as a new company and have to develop an experience around D2C, which is why folks have had to develop these really magnetic brands like a Casper or Quip or Stitch Fix or whatever that are value added beyond just the the possible commodity quantity that they're shipping. In the future, I think that's going to be a big part of what remains. But I also don't want to discount how big the food space is. Micah was talking about companies like Daily Harvest earlier. And there are so many different ways that each individual eats food. And then there are so many different stages in your life that change how you eat food. So when you're single, you might eat food out of a tray and you might drink Soylent or you know, some kind of shake or smoothie for breakfast. When you get in a couple, you might try your hand at cooking. When you get into a family, you care a lot more about costs and affordability and you need things to be extremely efficient. And maybe you're doing batch cooking or you introduce a fend for yourself night or a takeout or pizza night or something. And then you get into, should the adults eat differently than the kids? And, and there's just different ways that people see dinner, but that has nothing to do with how they might see lunch. And so I think, I think folks in Silicon Valley sometimes discount just the massive size of the food space when you add up all the Starbucks and the Chipotles and the Safeways and the Campbells and the Unilevers um, and Anheuser-Busch and all of this stuff all together. And so I think that we will continue to see titans like those companies in the future, but they will need to have more robust disciplines in data, data science, customer experience, co-customer creation, and likely own the entire value chain and direct-to-consumer delivery channel somehow. One, because it's what people want, but two, in order to compete with costs at scale, that's the most cost-effective distribution model. Yeah, and I was just going to add that, you you, you mentioned daily harvest we were talking about briefly, and I remember Rachel Drury from Daily Harvest pitching me, and I, she's just done an incredible job with that business, and it was it's going to be a big miss, I think, on my on my side. But you know what was so what's so interesting about that one, and I think just generally, is like a little bit of what's old is new too. So as much as we've been talking about like innovation and potentially lab grown meats, which I you know a lot of these things which will be very interesting in the future, I think it's also a reminder that like her insight was that frozen had been sort of un- overlooked as an interesting way to deliver, you know, fruits and veggies. And I was of the mind coming off plated and what Gobble's doing about fresh ingredients. And, you know, I, I think that's an interesting reminder that, you know, sometimes looking back and, and finding new ways to package or distribute, in that case, you know, literally just, you know, frozen soups and smoothies and desserts and, and, and drinks, I, I think it's a very clever way of taking something more traditional and, and putting it, you know, like there had been frozen fruits in the frozen section forever. Um, and it was kind of overlooked, like who would want to, you know, buy frozen fruits except to maybe throw in a smoothie. And I think by kind of prepackaging it, making it easy to like, I think she had some really great insights that, and I think about like what Ben's doing with hungry root, which is sort of like the, you know, pastas and dishes based on vegetables. So I, I think I am both very bullish on lab-grown stuff, innovations in aquaculture and indoor farming. At the same time, I think we're going to see some things that 
kind of look in hindsight and you're like, wow, that was sort of maybe obvious, or at least that there was, it was taking something that had been done before, but thinking about it in a new way. I think we may see some of those too. And, and so I think it's going to be a combination of deep innovation and, and also some interesting wrinkles on maybe things that don't seem all that unique, but are prepared in new ways. Right. I also want to add that, you know, these companies can get to pretty significant heights just on their one brand um, and their one product alone. And, and I think we'll see more acquisitions like Dollar Shave and other, you know, billion plus dollar acquisitions in, in this DNBB space. However, I think... Uh, two billion. Don't accept anything. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> but I think that in my view, volume and brand is not enough. I think that for the direct-to-consumer companies, it's enough to get to a certain level. But if I were an investor, I'd focus and really, really, really drill into the differentiation, the moats and defensibility, and how they will long-term cost compete with other people who just pour money into a space and will it to success. So we, we spend a lot of time thinking about kind of like protecting our house. And, and I think that's important. Micah, have you invested in any of the, you know, Soylent or Memphis Meats, uh, any of these types of companies? And if not, uh, what do you think about it? Uh, we haven't. I've looked at a few. I, again, I think like the first generation, you know, Impossible and Memphis, and all these guys I think are doing really great stuff. And I, you know, I've worried a little bit that some of them are a little more science and that they're further off in terms of like, you know, how close they are for, to commercialization at scale. But I, I think we're going to see a whole lot of those guys. And I think, you know, some of the first wave will win, some won't. And then we'll see another wave. And, and I'm very open-minded to those. So bring me those business plans. But I, I, think it's, I think it's sort of figuring out what is, you know, you're still competing in commodity markets. And that's, that's always been the rub. I remember looking and even thinking of joining, actually, biofuels companies, you know, 10 years ago. And that was really all the rage. And I think the problem was... And I still am hopefully bullish on some of those things. And obviously, they're different than food. But, um, you know, when you're competing against a gallon of oil or you're competing against a really low-cost commodity like your chicken or, or even beef, you got to be really efficient and really at scale. And I think that's still, you know, I, and I think, you know, over time, that will, it'll be more efficient to grow meat in a lab, just as drug manufacturers, you know, produce drugs or insulin. Uh, in a lab, uh, we will produce food in a lab. But I, you know, I'm not an expert on the science. I don't think it's it's going to happen overnight, and I think it's going to take a lot of capital and time. But long term, I think we'll absolutely be there. And I think there'll be a lot of incremental innovations along the way. We've done some stuff in agricultural tech, uh, you know, around those types of things that I think are sort of bridges between growing something in a lab and using technology and sensors to better better understand why uh, or how to help uh, a producer more efficiently produce whatever food they're trying to produce. Michael, let, let's talk a little bit about D2C uh, companies. What, why are you so excited about the opportunity to go, to go D2C? And, and as you sort of zoom out, what framework do you have for thinking about what markets have exciting D2C opportunities and, mm-hmm. and where they're more challenging? Yeah, I mean, I think our fund has always been kind of a, what I think is a healthy mix of direct consumer or consumer stuff, but also B2B stuff. But for whatever reason, the consumer stuff is always more attractive to talk about. And, and we've done a fair bit. And I've personally done a fair bit. I, I think it's, you know, it's what Ushma said, like this relationship to your customer and the ability to, to you know, I, I've been involved with Dia and company. My partner, Dave, was 
uh, on the board of PillPack, which recently sold to Amazon. And I think this ability to take information from, to use big data effectively, knowledge about your consumers, what products, you know, they're not taking the, you know, the red shirt, they're buying the blue. What does that inform us for the next time we present clothing or the next, you know, uh, should they be on a, on a, a generic drug? And I just think there's this ability, understanding of customers that the traditional retail never really had. And I think, you know, if you apply kind of data science and good merchandising and good branding, you kind of have this unique DNA to disrupt some different categories. And, you know, I've written a few pieces around, you know, like some are more optimistic. So, you know, I I think you can't just do the Warby Casper playbook on every category. Um, And every category is a bit nuanced, you know, you mentioned Quip and, you know, we're seeing a lot in healthcare. Each of those has its own, I think, set of regulations and, you know, questions about why a consumer is going to make a decision or not. But I do think it all comes back to this relationship to the customer, being able to have this feedback loop. I like your, your comment about Zara, because I think in some ways, all these businesses look a little more like Zara. They are much more reactive and quick in terms of the products and the way they interact with their customers. And I think, frankly, customers want to understand who they're sourcing, who they're, who they're getting stuff from. So I think there's this, you know, like, I feel like I can uh, reach out, you know, if I buy a pair of sneakers from a given brand, Allbirds or Greats or whatever, I feel like I have a relationship with the company. I can, I actually did the other day, I, it was raining and I was worried about like ruining some new shoes and I like instant, you know, chatted with someone. And it, it's, I would never think to do that with Nike. I probably could. But it's not the type of like, like, you know, but they, they like immediately said, spray this stuff on your shoes. That's what we use here. And it was just such an interesting reminder of the brand connection you have with some of these brands in a way that you never had with the old brands. So, you know, I remain like very intrigued by we, we've done uh, a business called Hawthorne for Men, which is mask or, or customized men's skincare products. I'm using it. You know, I, I use them. I love them. They're growing very nicely. And I, I think there's certain categories where with some innovations and understanding of customers, you can really grow. But I think there's also, you know, some categories are just really hard. And, you know, I, I, I think the trick is to kind of pick the right categories and pick the right teams executing on those categories and run the business re- relatively capital efficient, efficiently. I think when you get in these brand wars where, you know, you're raising $100 million and you're bidding on each other's keywords and you put in, you know, uh, one company's name into Google and both companies come up as, you know, uh, as sponsored results. Like, you know that they're both um, spending each other and those categories worry me and they may have been good categories. And frankly, we saw a little bit of this in the, in, in the meal kit space. And I, I, I think I'm hoping that, you know, more rational heads prevail in some of these categories so that they don't become these arms races. But in general, I'm optimistic. I, I you know, Mike, I know you got to go in a, in a minute. So maybe my last question to you is uh, what makes D2C an attractive area to invest from an outcomes perspective versus outcomes for, with B2B or consumer software or otherwise? Um, I think you can ramp revenues pretty quickly. Uh, I think we've gotten to the point where there's a playbook, rough playbook that is understood around the type of brand, the type of, you know, I, I think Warby opened our eyes to disrupting these sort of cartels. Uh, with a much lower price product, but still kind of hip brand. So I think I, I think one is like there's a playbook, there's an understanding of like what your CAC needs to be, what your LTV needs to be, what like I think there's like increasing understanding. The rails are sort of there. I think DTC is fun. It's fun to 
you know, have a product that you can use. You know, it's fun to think about creating de novo brands. It's fun to use data to create new brands. And then I think last but not least, I think it's sort of like, I, I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities. I think we're seeing, you know, uh, Ushma mentioned these billion dollar exits. You know, I think if you asked me five or 10 years ago, I would say like, who's going to buy these companies? I, you know, I, I, think, I think, look, Amazon, uh, sorry, Walmart acquired Jet really out of the threat of Amazon. And, and I think Jet in, terms, in turn has been kind of the M&A shop buying Bonobos and a bunch of other things for, for Walmart. So like, there are a lot of buyers out there. And by the way, Amazon bought PillPack. So, you know, I, I think what's interesting about DTC at the moment is there actually are these incumbents who have big pocketbooks who don't have these innovations. And so, you know, whereas I think in software, not to say there, obviously there will always be and in and, and other elements of tech, lots of M&A, but a lot of these firms are like, look, we can, we could either build this, you know, a lot of these big companies, whether it's Salesforce or Oracle or Microsoft, you know, a lot of these products they probably could build. They could literally put, you know, 50 engineers, hundreds of engineers on a product overnight. Look at what Facebook did with, you know, Snapchat or and Instagram stories and stuff. So it's not to say that one is better than the other, but I do think the incumbents are sleepy at the moment and not, they don't seem like they can respond as quickly for a lot of structural reasons. And so that makes CPG or DMVB investing attractive, but like everything, it's still hard. The multiples may not be as good. There are a lot of risks and uh, we'll, we'll see how they all play out. But Usman, I'll ask a few questions from the founder perspective. So how should founders think about building such brands in a, in a noisy landscape? And, and how do you think about it at Gobble? I think like Micah said, there is a playbook now for building these brands. There's even a name, DMBB, that talks about just the, the recipe for success with these direct-to-consumer companies that you know go to New York, find a shop, build a great brand, uh, and turn on the hype machine. So to me, the challenge really isn't in building the brand or hyping the brand. I think with the right team and money, you can do that. And I also think consumers are very receptive to experiential, cool brands kind of coming out of you know, Silicon Valley or New York, et cetera. I think the difficulty is in defending the brand and continuing the growth after the hype and ensuring that there's, there's more new content, more new items to buy, and that your company is, is bigger than that, that one brand or one product. Hardware is a really good example where the CAC to LTV ratios in, um, in a lot of hardware businesses just don't make sense because they have to pay the same amount of dollars on Facebook to acquire a customer as a subscription company, but they only get one purchase one time instead of you know, looking at a subscription company where they get kind of purchases for a lifetime. As you were building your brand out, how did you think about differentiation from the other players in the space? You know, I'm not the kind of person that thinks that I can just dream up success in an ivory tower. And I think that the press sometimes makes it look like amazing CEOs like a Steve Jobs or whoever do that. But really, it's because they're obsessed with the product and obsessed with the customer. And if you see someone using something else, it makes your blood boil. So the way that we built our brand was not just because I dreamt it up, but it was a twofold strategy. One is that I just have a very deep philosophy in customer co-creation. And I just spend all of our time with our customers. 
whether it was when we were first starting or when we were in Y Combinator or even now when we're making like millions of dollars a week, I still ensure that I am hearing from, talking to, calling, going to the home of, or responding to customer service emails on a weekly basis. So that's how we built the brand. And I think you have to do that because every day I think that maybe our product is not the same product that's necessary tomorrow. And how do we iterate it? What are the micro iterations that we should implement right now? And then what are the like big step function changes that we're noticing that need to need to come in the next couple of years? The other piece to the strategy is really just a first principles approach to brand building. So one example is in our industry, the traditional meal kits are actually in many ways a group of copycats. Not every single one of them, but but some some group of them. And what's really funny is it's so obvious. Um, it's evident in the name of the company. So you have Blue Apron, and then you have Green Chef, and you have Purple Carrot. And basically, the recipe for naming your company was choose a color and a food word, put it together, and you have a food startup. And all their boxes are brown craft with one color on it. So we knew that we were building a long-term company and a long-term brand, and I wanted to own the space. And there's a subtle nod to that in our actual brand design. The person that designed our logo and our brand, is his name is Mackie Saturday. So we co-created the Gobble brand, and he actually designed the Instagram logo and uh, visual ID, fun fact. So he is awesome. And what we did is we elevated Gobble its name was already there, but we matched the brand to the name and we made it not one color, but every color. So if you look on our site or if you look at our boxes at our product, it's just like the celebration of bold, vibrant colors with an iconic logo. Think Nike or Spotify and their big splashy color billboards. They own all colors and all singers. They're all athletes, etc. And it's this larger than life brand. Not only was that like, a subtle competitive nod to the space, but it also was derived from first principles. I would go and look at food in the grocery store or at the Whole Foods salad bar, and it's great food is vibrant and colorful, not just one color. In fact, blue isn't even really a food color. It's a cooking color and a chef's apron color. But when you look at a salad bar, you see these reds and greens and yellows and oranges, etc. That's how we designed our brand. It was very thoughtful and it was built for the long term. That's a great place to, to wrap. Where can people learn more about you and Gobble online and which they stay tuned for in the future? You can find me on Twitter, which is at Ushma, just my first name, O-O-S-H-M-A. And you can try Gobble at www.gobble.com. You should be able to make a dinner anyone should be able to cook with one pan, olive oil, and 15 minutes and impress whoever they want. And I hope people do try it out. We have some really exciting announcements coming in January that are going to be some of those step function changes that I mentioned um, that we've had in the works for the last year. So, uh, so stay tuned for gobble in the news in the new year. Awesome. Wishman, thanks so much for, for coming to the podcast. Thanks so much, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 